Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. And on today's show, I have my good friend, David Campbell, back. David is a good friend of mine and the founder of Hassle-Free Cashflow Investing. David started investing in real estate part-time while he was working as a full-time high school band director with zero net worth. And then within six years and before the age of 30, David became a financially independent millionaire through part-time real estate investing. David has been involved with new home construction. In fact, he was one of our new home builders in the state of Texas for a number of years. He's been involved in land development, commercial real estate, and he has been focused as a professional mortgage note investor for over a decade now. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, Marco. Thank you so much for having me back. I love talking with you and and your listeners, and I'm excited to see what we learned today. Yeah, I'm excited too. I think we have a great topic, and uh, I've titled it How to Predict Real Estate Prices, which I think uh, is of interest to most, if not all, real estate investors. What do you think? Yeah, and I think your title is very specific about real estate prices rather than real estate values because values and prices are are two different things. But as an investor, when we're focused on profits, it's the increase in prices that makes us money, not necessarily the increase in value. Okay, so you know what? You're, you're kind of jumping in, and, and that's great. So break that down. Define value, define price, because I think for a lot of people, they think they're one and the same, and, and I know what you're talking about, but a lot of people are saying, well, what's the difference? Yeah, so value is the usefulness of a particular item. So for example, the usefulness of a gallon of gasoline is pretty much constant, right? It gets you from point A to point B by creating a certain amount of energy when it's burned. But the price of gasoline fluctuates every single day because of different variables. It could be the supply of the gasoline. It could be the demand for that gasoline. It could be the supply of the currency, which is used to purchase that gasoline. Or it could be the demand or the velocity of that currency that's used to purchase gasoline as well. Okay, so everything you're talking about comes down to two or three fundamental things. One is supply, and supply could be measured on many, many different things. Second is demand. And the third we'll get to here in a moment because we really haven't jumped into talking about real estate specifically. But before we go down that road, do you do you want to maybe I always like to start off my episodes with with people talking about them. And I'd like to just ask you the question, you know, how did you get involved in real estate? Maybe you could just take a minute to talk about that if you don't mind. Sure. So Marco, when I was a high school band director, gosh, I started in the mid to late 90s and I was getting my first paycheck and I still qualified for food stamps. And (laughs) I realized that even though I was an educated, smart college graduate, I was setting myself up for a financially humble lifestyle. And at that time, I knew that I wanted a little bit more for myself and I wanted to have a family and I wanted to be able to support that family in a very comfortable way. And so I started looking for financial vehicles that were more powerful than trading my time for money particularly in my teaching profession, someone else was telling me what my time was worth. And there was nothing that I could do to be a better or candidly worse teacher to make my income go up or down. And so I was looking for another vehicle and the vehicle of real estate and the mortgage investing, those two vehicles really resonated with me. And so I started out buying real estate and that went great. And after Uh, As you said, six years and about a dozen real estate deals, I was able to be out of the rat race. And getting out of the rat race is easy when your expenses are low. And so once I was out of the rat race, I was able to focus on creating a real estate development company. And that expanded into also starting a private lending business. And then just through my personal investing, plus the success of those two business units is where I am today. Great. Yeah, you're you're quite the success story, especially becoming a millionaire and financially independent before the age of 30, which is what a lot of people aspire to do. 
So, you know, kudos to you. Thanks. Thanks. Now I'm uh, over 40 and there's a lot of underwater bridge under the water in that last decade. And, and now I've been doing real estate full time much longer than I've done anything else. And uh, there's a saying that once you've done something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert in, in that particular niche. And it's so true, man. When people are just starting out in real estate, there's a lot that they don't know they don't know. And there's a whole vocabulary that they think they might know what it means. But when you start using that vocabulary in a way to make investing decisions and financial decisions, that vocabulary means something different. For example, we started out and the word prices and the word value. A lot of people think they know what the word price means and what the word value means. But today, I think we're going to talk about those words in ways that might help people think about money in a little bit different way. Yeah. And this is why educating yourself is so important. And I harp on it so much is because the more you learn, the more you build up your financial IQ and you start to understand the differences between these different phrases and terms. And you can talk the talk and you understand the lingo and the language and you understand the difference between value and price, etc. There's another saying, David, I think it's something like this. You became an overnight success, but that overnight success was, you know, 10 years in the making. It's so true, man. And, you know, and no path is without you know, pitfalls and turns. And so when people look at my breadth of experience in real estate, in some senses, uh, you know, a savvy person should say, well, well, man, you have ADD. You've done too many things in, in real estate, like pick a niche and work that niche. And what I like to believe is that different vehicles and different strategies for investing change depending on what's happening in the global economic cycle, and it should change the vehicles that you choose to invest in that will change depending on the benefits that you are looking for from those financial vehicles. So that if you are trying to create wealth, for example, or you're trying to create equity, then you might be investing in highly leveraged you know, real estate for appreciation and for amortization. But if you want cash flow on a monthly basis, you're probably going to be more interested in mortgage investing. And if you want security because you're trying to protect your net worth in a potentially volatile economy, then the same thing. You, you want safety first type mortgage investments rather than going out to buy a whole bunch of properties at, at a seller's market. Yep. You have to adapt to the time and the market and the real estate cycle. And it, it's like if you're the uh, number one manufacturer of typewriters, and, uh, you know, you, you don't change, you're going to be run over by, you know, the PC and the word processor. So you have to be able to adapt to the changing times. And that means a lifetime of continuing education. That's right. So I really applaud everyone who's listening to your show today because they've made their own commitment to continuing education. And by doing an automatic download on your iTunes feed, it's awesome. It's a free subscription to one of the most educational resources your listeners can tap into. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So on that on that note, you know, here's kind of the overarching question. How important is it to be able to predict real estate prices? Because after all, that's going to be the theme of the show. And before you answer that, I know that our clients are aware of this, that we put a focus on cash flow primarily and then secondarily, there's the amortization of the loan. And then we look at tax benefits. These are all wonderful things about real estate. But, you know, back in 2003, 2004, and 2005, so many people were focused on appreciation. They they were looking at how much can I grow the value? Well, not so much the value, the price of these assets over the years through appreciation. They were focused on what I refer to as speculation. You know, that's not our philosophy. We don't focus on the price of a property and how much appreciation there is. Although, you know, it's nice to have and it's important. Sometimes I refer to it as icing on the cake. We always focus on cash flow first. So let me throw this over to you. Answer the question. How important do you think it is to be able to predict real estate prices? I would say in the short term, being able to predict real estate prices would help you find an entry point into the marketplace. Over the long term, predicting real estate prices is a lot less important. You know, for example, my parents bought a $50,000 home in Southern California in 1970. 
And then 40 years later, they sold it for a half a million dollars. And I like to tell the story, well, what if they had overpaid for that house by 50%? What if they had paid $75,000 at the time where everyone was paying 50 grand? They look like fools, but wouldn't they be pretty smart if they had loaded up on a hundred of those overpriced houses and held them for 40 years? They'd be, you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaires by overpaying for property. And another for saying that I like to say is you're going to overpay for every property that you will ever buy. Because if someone were willing to pay more, they would be the owner of the property instead of you. Right. So how to predict real estate prices, how important is it? I think it's important in helping me decide which part of the market cycle we're in, whether we're in a buyer's market or a seller's market. And that generally helps me decide which types of asset classes I'm going to be involved in. Because I'm a market cycle investor. I want to buy when it's a time to buy and I want to sell when it's a time to sell. If you're just going to buy and hold forever and not churn your portfolio, then I think predicting real estate prices is a lot less important. So that's not to say that this show is not important or less important to people who are long-term buy and hold investors? Well, understanding the concept and understanding how to use the tool, I think is vitally important for every investor so that they can make educated decisions and decide whether that tool is relevant for their own portfolio or, or, or not. But having the information is, a, I think, of huge importance to every investor so they can understand when they are seeing prices move or not move that they understand why that's happening. And so they can also sound intelligent when they're talking with other investors, because when you understand the vocabulary, you're going to attract other people to your life that understand the vocabulary, and you're going to get a more intelligent and more successful sphere of influence of people to do business with. So it sounds like you can hedge your, your risk, if you will, if you focus on cash flow and you focus on the long-term investment horizon, because the price of real estate will work itself out over time because asset prices go up mostly because of inflation, but you've got cash flow every month, every year to hold and carry that property over time. And sure, if you invested in a different market, maybe you would have made more in terms of appreciation, but overall this should work out. You'll end up with an asset that grows equity through appreciation and through amortization. You've got the cash flow and you don't need to worry or try to time the market. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, a lot of real estate wounds are healed with time. So if you make a mistake in real estate in your positive cash flow, time heals most wounds in real estate. But some people, depending on their where they are in their personal life, maybe they're 60 or 70 years old, they might not have enough time for the real estate cycle movement to heal those wounds. And so then it becomes even more important to understand how to predict real estate prices when your timeframes are shorter. Right. And, th- and I think that's more true if you're in a market to to flip than to buy and hold, because you obviously want to buy in a market that's stable or appreciating if you're looking to flip because you increase your risk if you're buying in a declining market. You have you to, want to buy be better. Yeah, you want to be a momentum investor. You want to buy with the trend. And the long-term trend is generally prices are generally going up because not the price of I'm sorry, not the value of real estate is going up, but because the currency in which that real estate is denominated, that currency is devaluing because of inflation or an increased supply of currency and a a reduced demand for that currency. I think where that plays in heavily is in the value of that mortgage underlying the acquisition of the property. In other words, you have a 30-year mortgage on a property, and as time goes on, that mortgage becomes worth less and less because you still pay it every month in a fixed amount of dollars. But over time, that dollar, the purchasing power of that dollar goes down. So you're actually paying it every month, every year for the same amount. But the value of that loan becomes worth less. I don't know if I'm making sense. I know I'm making sense to myself, David. 
but uh, maybe to the listener, they're not following on this. In other words, if you have a 30-year mortgage today and your monthly payment is $500 a month, you know, that might seem like, okay, a substantial payment. Maybe it's half of what your monthly rent is at $1,000. But if you fast forward 10 or 20 years from now, that $500 monthly payment hasn't changed, but that might seem like a very small payment in in relative terms because now that that property you just purchased may be two or three times the price you bought it at originally and your rent might have gone up from a thousand to let's say two thousand dollars a month so now it's much less significant yeah let me try to say the same thing in a different way so that your investors can have a different way of looking at the same yeah, concept so let's say because i believe that when you're buying real estate that the mortgage is the asset that the property itself is just an excuse to create income to support that mortgage. But let's say you were to buy a $100,000 property with an $80,000 loan, so 80% loan to value. And let's say there's a widget, and that widget is priced at $20,000. If the value of the property goes up and the value of that widget stays the same, then you'll be able to sell the property and have more widgets, right? So that's the exchange of value. We've removed currency from the conversation, and we're just talking about how many widgets per property. And so if you can renovate the property and make it nicer and cleaner and more people want to use that property or it's gentrified or the utility of that property goes up, you'll be able to trade that property for more widgets. But now let's put currency into the equation. So let's say the price of a widget goes from $20,000 to $40,000 and the value of the widget stayed the same and the value of the house stayed the same. That means the price of the home is going to go from $100,000 to $200,000. So your value didn't increase, but the price doubled. The price of the widget doubled. The price of the house doubled. And now let's look at the mortgage. Oh, before we get there. So now you sell that $200,000 home. You've got a $100,000 capital gain. Let's say you give $20,000 of that capital gain to the IRS and now you're left with $180,000 and you try to go buy widgets with it. Hmm. Well, you paid five widgets for the property, but now even though your home doubled in price, you can't buy five widgets anymore because you, that tax bite, that increase in the price of the property less the taxable bite means that you actually lost purchasing power. And so many people don't see that, right? They say, hey, my property went from 100 to 200. I had a home run. And well, you know, when you look at the purchasing power, did you really? And so the way that you make money in real estate is with that placeholder of price, that placeholder of value, which is the mortgage. So let's say you bought that $100,000 property, $80,000 mortgage. When you resell that property, and you sell it for $200,000, and you pay off that mortgage, assuming that you had an interest-only mortgage to make the story easier, you'd be paying off that mortgage with two widgets. You're not going to pay him $80,000. You're going to pay him two widgets. And then you sold it for five widgets, and then you paid your mortgage off with two widgets, and you've got one of your widgets that is your own money coming back to you, and then there's money left over, and that money left over is real profit in terms of purchasing power. And so that increase in purchasing power is the thing that we really want as real estate investors. And the thing that gives us that increase in purchasing power over time is the diminishing value of the debt. The diminishing value of the debt is what makes us a profit in real estate. What you just said is why real estate is so powerful and why leverage is the vehicle I shouldn't say the vehicle, the tool that allows you to create that wealth. You know, you can't do that with any other asset class. I call real estate an asset class. Some people don't. But you're right, David, that leverage is so powerful. And that's what ultimately ends up creating wealth. Yeah. I mean, if I could buy bars of gold with financing and stick them in my basement 
that seems like a good plan until I have to go pay the mortgage on the gold, right? If I could find someone that would rent my gold on a monthly basis, that would be a pretty easy business model, right? But that doesn't exist, right? The only business model I know where someone else will give you the majority of the money to buy the asset and then pay the interest costs on that loan plus a profit margin on your equity is real estate. There's no other investment vehicle where you can buy with such leverage and margin and get the cash flow to pay for that margin. Yes. And you also point out the relativity of things. You know, it's, uh, I'm not sure if I can clearly explain this, but you know, what you buy something for today on a per dollar basis years from now, you know, as long as the rate of inflation is consistent, you know, your purchasing power will diminish the value of your property will go up. But that $100,000 home today, whatever you make on it without financing, is not going to be as attractive as if you had leverage on that property. Because five or 10 years from now, all real estate will be more expensive, not just the $100,000 property you bought. So you might now need to spend $200,000 to get the same property in 10 years from now. Well, you, you need 10 times as much to put down or 10 times as much to invest. But when you factor in the financing where you can only put down 20, 25% of that purchase price, now you're building true wealth because you're using other people's money and other people's rent to pay off that mortgage. I think another way of saying what you just said is if you want to make $10 million in real estate, go out and get $10 million worth of debt today. Correct. Yeah. You know, it's awesome. There is a, I carry a, a 10 trillion dollar mortgage piece of currency, Zimbabwe currency in my pocket. And uh, it's in my wallet. And it's just a good reminder that in the 70s, that $10 trillion mortgage note from Zimbabwe of Zimbabwe currency would have purchased the entire city of Orlando. And now fast forward in today's money, that $10 trillion note buys you lunch. And that's it. So if I was able to borrow $10 trillion in the 70s and just hold on to that debt and let the income from all that property in Orlando to just service the interest on that note, and then today I go to pay that bank off, I just have to take the banker and buy him a Big Mac, and now I own all of the city of Orlando free and clear. Because the thing that changed was the denomination, the price denomination, and the value of the underlying debt decreased. But I think what's interesting is looking at supply, demand, and capacity to pay. And those three things, we're looking at supply and demand of the commodity of real estate. And we also look at the supply and demand of the currency that's used to purchase that real estate. Those are two different independent gears moving side by side, supply and demand of property, supply and demand of the currency used to, to purchase that property. And those gears are moving independently of each other. And what's interesting is a lot of people forget that capacity to pay is a huge part of predicting real estate prices. Because if you are a family and you're using 100% of your income to pay a mortgage, you can't pay more, even if you want to. Even if you said, I really, really want to buy this house, Marco. If you're using all of your money already, you can't pay more. And so that's where a lot of markets are easy to look at. Can the price go up? Can the price continue to go up? And an easy thing to look at is census data for median income and census data for median home price. And if you look at the median income and the median home price and you figure out, can the person with the median income afford the median home? And if the answer is no, prices can't go up. They just can't. Even if supply and demand and any, but any other factors, they, they can't go up unless the incomes go up. And then that's a great way to pick undervalued markets. Because if you find a situation where people are only using 10, 20% of their household income to pay for real estate, that's very affordable. People can afford more than 10 to 20% of their income. If people are using more than 45% of their income for property, 
They can't. They just can't afford to get the mortgages, or even if they could potentially afford them, they can't get the loans if they're over 45% DTI. Yeah. And last night, what you're talking about here are affordability ratios, and, and that's something very important to look at. So what I did as an exercise last night is I just pulled some current information, or at least as current as I could possibly find on median prices and median household incomes on five different markets. Three of these markets are ones that we operate in where we actually have investment property available for sale. And then two of them are markets that are kind of priced out of the affordability range. One of them was a market that we used to be in twice over the last 12 years. And we were in and out of it because that market cycle had gone up. It had appreciated. It had become unaffordable. We stepped out of that market. It had come down. It became affordable. It made sense again financially. So we went back into that market. And then, you know, that market cycle turned around after it hit a trough. And once again, it became unaffordable. So the first market was Dallas. Uh, median price of about 150000 Median household income of about 59000 so your affordability ratio is 2.6. All I did is I just divided the 59,000 into the $150,000. So that's a relatively low number. So that's an affordable market. I took a look at Kansas City. Again, about $148,000 median price. The median household income is about $58,000. Again, we have a 2.6 affordability ratio. Now, I looked at Birmingham. Actually, it was a little higher. Birmingham was a little higher than I expected. Uh, median ho home price of 134600 The median household income of about 49500 So it's a 2.7 affordability ratio. So anything up to three is, you know, very affordable. As you get to the three to five range, it becomes less affordable. And if it's over five, it's unaffordable. But here's it. Here's something that's interesting. Phoenix has gone up quite a bit over the last two years. Now the median home price there is one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars, and the median household income is about fifty-two thousand five hundred. So it's a three point eight affordability ratio. So you can still find deals in Phoenix, but they're not as plentiful, and also the numbers don't work as well as they used to. But I, David, I just want to point out one more market for comparison here, because a lot of people can relate to markets like New Jersey, New York, Los Angeles, you know, these, these higher priced coastal markets, or sometimes what I refer to as bubble markets. So up in Los Angeles, and I'm talking, you know, within the MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area, you've got a median household income, or excuse me, median household price of $455,000. Yet the median household income in that area is only $56,000. That gives you an affordability ratio of 8.1. So taking this all back to what you're saying is markets like Dallas and Birmingham have a much higher potential for price appreciation than a market does like Los Angeles that has an, an 8.1 affordability ratio. You got it. That's correct. And people often will say, well, I want to invest in the hot market where prices are high because if they've always been high, they'll continue to be high. And I don't think that's necessarily true because even though they're desirable and there is demand for the product and there's a restriction of supply, the capacity to pay isn't there. People can't pay more even if they wanted to. Right. So there's got to be a breaking point at some point where people cannot afford to buy anymore. And what does that do? The next logical step is that lack of affordability drives down the demand. And with demand drying up, less people are buying. And that just starts pushing prices down because if sellers want to sell, they have to come down to meet what demand there is. Correct? That's correct. Yep. And what has driven market cycles or market prices up and down in the past, a lot of times has been the supply of currency in the form of mortgage financing. Because if anyone can get a loan, like in the case of, say, 2003 to about 2007, when stated income loans were so easy to get, you just had to fog a mirror and you could get a mortgage in 2006. And because that supply of money was so available, 
that meant more people had capacity to pay, more people than ever could afford to pay a mortgage. And so they did. They, they got these mortgages. And when those mortgages were negative amortization with these teaser interest rates that really, really low, again, that increased capacity to pay. And when a whole bunch of people have increased capacity to pay, that makes demand go up, which then pushes the price up. And so that was a big driver of the American real estate market in that 2003 to 2000, let's say, eight timeframe. And then the end of 2008 into 2009 and 10 and 11, lenders got really shy and they pulled back and they said, we're not giving loans to unqualified borrowers anymore. That dried up the supply of currency, which dried up the capacity to pay which dropped the demand for housing, which meant prices had to go down because there were fewer buyers and more sellers. And then when the lenders started coming back into the marketplace again in 2013, 2014, then we start seeing that market cycle or that market pricing start to increase because capacity to pay increased. It's not that we have a whole bunch of more people and a whole lot less houses. That's a very simplistic model to say, well, we have more people and less houses than, well, and of course the prices go up. But a natural part of the supply and demand push and pull is that as there is more demand for housing, builders add more supply. And so there is always just a little pull, push and pull, more demand than supply, and then builders build more. And then they always overbuild. And then there's too much supply for the demand. And then they have to wait for that supply to get gobbled up through population growth. And then prices come into equilibrium again. In that time, builders have gone out of business and they can't keep up with supply anymore. And then prices go up. And so it's a very complex moving model. But if you understand that the variables of supply, demand of the product, supply and demand of the currency, and then the capacity to pay those five things are the things that are going to help you figure out where prices are going. Yeah. And that also illustrates why the permits being pulled for new home construction is a lagging indicator for a real estate market is because the builders follow the increase in demand. When they see the increase in demand, they go out and pull permits, they start building. And then when the demand dries up, they still have construction going on and permits that have been pulled. So even though the trend may be upward, the demand have, may have already dried up. So you can't just look at you know the number of building permits or the number of homes being built by new home builders as an indicator of where that market is going because unfortunately, in most cases, it's a lagging indicator. Absolutely. I think the leading indicator for supply is going to be the supply of finished vacant lots or finished single-family home lots because – when you build, I'm a, I own a home building company, so this is a very personal topic for me, which I study a lot. When there is high demand for housing, builders are going to build. And, but when you build a house, it only takes four to six months to build a house. But to take a piece of raw land until the place where you can start building a house that can take years, especially in more highly regulated, governmentally involved marketplaces, years and years and years to take raw land until you're ready to put a house on it because of permitting, because of zoning changes, because of environmental impact changes and getting the utilities set up to your site, getting the roads and the infrastructure put in. That's a very slow moving process. Lot creation is a very slow moving process. Home building, which is what the census people track is when are you going to pull a permit to have a home ready in three to six months from now? So I would like to say as a home builder, when we, when the supply demand was lower, let's say a couple of years ago, we were building more houses. We were pulling more permits when the demand was lower because the land availability was there. Now that land availability has been gobbled up and there aren't very many lots to go build on, we're building fewer houses. We're building you know, fewer homes. However, it would look like that there's less demand now because we're pulling fewer permits, but that's actually not true, that, that there is more demand than ever and fewer houses are being able to be built because the supply of lots can't keep up. 
Yeah. Taking that one step further, sometimes you have to look at things that you normally don't think about. Like, for example, environmentalists, you know, they sometimes get in the way of the permitting process and the and the political process in freeing up available land or or rezoning of land to create more supply of land to build on and you know this is one of the issues that we see in California here is there are groups that kind of get in the way of the free market where we can create more available land to build new housing but because that is being weighed down kind of like a ball and chain we can't keep up, I say we here in the state of California, can't keep up to the natural growth in demand for housing. And so, therefore, that lack of supply pushes prices up. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it seems to be a, a pretty big problem here in Southern California. Yeah, you know, you know, there's also the supply of water is a big issue for a lot of the desert communities where you go out to, say, Las Vegas and you see land for days and you think, what what would ever make the prices of real estate go up here because there's so much availability of land, but it's in the middle of the desert. You, you can't get a lot of water out there. And so now municipalities are starting to have to make sure that they have a supply of water available to meet the demands of the homes being built. And then if they don't, if you don't have enough water, then you can't build there. You can't turn that desert land into tract homes because there's no water to do it. David, what would you say are the top three factors or the most important factors when it comes to supply? And then same question for demand. I will just kind of first of all say that for me, jobs and migration rates into a market weigh heavily into the supply equation. What would you say are the top three most important factors? In determining the supply of real estate, and the potential future supply of real estate, I want to look at the availability of land. Like, is there land to develop? And if there is no land to develop, you can't add more supply. And things that can cause restrictions of land would be natural geographic barriers like oceans or mountains. The other would be governmental restrictions on on supply like you were mentioning earlier environmental groups or you know i i live on a beautiful farm and there's an endangered species butterfly that lives in our neighborhood and there's no way anyone could develop any of these farms into tract homes because it would remove the habitat for this endangered species butterfly so you might look out and say wow there's land for days to be developed here but Nope. There's a governmental restriction on the ability to develop because of environmental concerns. The third thing I would say, predicting supply, is the cost of construction relative to market prices. And there are times in the market cycle where the market is begging for more supply, but home builders look at the current housing inventory and say, I can't build because it's cheaper to buy an existing home than it is to build one. And so if a builder says it's going to cost me $100,000 to build a home here, and when it's done, I could sell it for $90,000, nobody's going to build. So you have to wait at different parts of the market cycle where replacement cost is under the current pricing. And so if you look at a marketplace and you say, you know what? It is still affordable to build new, and there are lots of builders building new, then you can see supply coming in. When prices compress, and the prices compress below replacement cost, nobody can add supply to that marketplace in a cost-effective way. And so prices would have to go up above the cost of construction before more supply is going to come into the marketplace. That's exactly what happened after 2007, 2008, and that is the reason why today 80 to 90% of our sales are newly refurbished turnkey homes. They're not newly built homes. They're not new construction, although we do have some, like in some markets in the state of Texas, a lot of the properties that we sold with you when you were building single-family homes in Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, it made sense in those markets to build new construction. 
But still today, you know, we, we don't see more than maybe 10% of our clients, our investors purchasing new construction because it's just not out there. You know, it's peppered around the country, but it's not common, at least not yet. I mean, the, the day will come where the numbers make sense and the economics are there for builders to profit in other markets. But that supply of new inventory doesn't exist. A minute ago, I, I don't know if I made a mistake in saying that jobs and migration played into the supply side of the equation. I, what I meant to say is demand. So let's shift gears here for a minute. What would you say are the most important factors for the demand side of the equation? Yeah, so the demand side of the equation is kind of on the utility side. Like People need a place to keep themselves warm and dry. And so when there are more people interested in, in that utility, then that's going to increase demand. The demand also shifts what I call move up buyers and move down buyers is kind of influenced by capacity to pay as well. But those go a little bit hand in hand. So as more people move into the market, then there is more demand for housing. As households are created, then that creates more demand for housing. Household creation is slightly different than population growth because when you're looking at a family where there's lots of young children, then the number of people per household is large. And so you need less houses. And as that population ages, then the people are creating more households. And so then you're going to see a shift. And so if you are really a demographer, you could look at a marketplace and say, hmm, there's a, a population segment that has a lot of young families. And then there's a gap where when those young families start creating household uh, formation, there's going to be higher demand. What we're seeing now with just generational expectations, there's a lot of younger people that don't have work or they don't have meaningful work or career work. And so there's a lot of people sleeping on couches and there are a lot of young college graduates that are still living with mom and dad. And they want housing. I mean, everybody wants a nice house and, and a nicer house and a bigger house. And that's demand, right? If you're giving out free houses, everybody would take one. But the capacity to pay is limiting the people's ability to enter into that home purchasing market. And so when that capacity to pay changes, the question is, are there some sleeper demographics there, people on couches, people living with mom and dad, late to launch kind of demographics that are going to increase demand for housing in the near future? The other is the opposite, right? Is, is the population aging in such a way that people are not buying houses or what kind of houses are they buying as the population ages that will change the other thing is looking at population shifts, just influx of population. There's a general trend happening where people are moving from the Midwest and the, the North. They're moving to the West and to the South. And there's moving companies that publish national trends of moves that say how many people are, have moved from point A to point B versus in reverse. A really cheap and easy way to see demographic shifts as you can say, price a U-Haul truck from Los Angeles to Dallas, and then price that same truck in return from Dallas to Los Angeles. And based on current market trends, it's significantly cheaper to go from Dallas to Los Angeles one way than vice versa. And that's because there's so many people that want to do that Los Angeles to Dallas one-way move and not as many people that want to do the reverse. So they incentivize the prices for people who are willing to bring those trucks back to Los Angeles. Yeah, we that's the U-Haul report. We just published that on our blog not too long ago, maybe two, three months ago. And it's very interesting. It shows you where people are moving to, and they rank all the states in order. And Texas was, I think, the first or second on the top of that list as far as where people are moving to. Interestingly enough, places like the Rust Belt up in the Northeast, parts of California were places where it had a pretty strong negative net migration out of state. So yeah, those are interesting studies. There was one other thing I wanted to mention about demand. Oh yeah, pent up demand. You were talking about some demographics. I think millennials, because of the lack of capacity to pay, you know, that comes down to lack of jobs or lack of career type jobs. But a lot of these 
millennials are staying home, creating larger household sizes, but the day will come where there's going to be a boomerang effect. And I think these people will eventually move out of the home and create demand. And that could be a demand for apartments. It could be demand for starter homes. But if you can get on top of that trend now and see where they're going to be moving to or what they're going to be buying as far as product type, I think you can position yourself as a real estate investor to take advantage of that coming wave. I don't think that's going to be for a while, you know, maybe five to 10 years down the road. But that's just another variable that plays into that demand equation. Yeah, also looking at density and the changes in density can also impact the, the supply you know, taking a step back to supply for a moment. For example, in the South Dallas market in the 20s and 30s, people were building starter homes on half acre. And then, you know, there was time happened and those homes became functionally obsolete because they were, you know, 900 square foot homes, three bedroom, one bath on a half acre right? That became functionally obsolete. And the people left those neighborhoods in favor of, you know, three bedroom, two bath, two car garage, 3000 square foot homes and 2000 square foot homes. And so there were people that left those neighborhoods behind in favor of uh, more gentrified neighborhoods. But then you see the full swing come back once those houses have come to the end of their utilitarian life. They're more valuable as dirt than they are as a structure. People scrape those structures and they aren't building 900 square foot homes on a half acre lot, right? They're either going to split that lot into two and now you have two households or maybe four and now you have four households or they take this $50,000 junker house, they scrape it and then they put a McMansion on it that becomes a half million dollar McMansion on a half acre lot close to city center. So that's an interesting way to also look at changing demographics and the different types of supply, right? When you're looking at, you know, what is being supplied to a marketplace, that is also important is just to look at the raw supply, like what is being supplied and the demand, same thing, not just the demand, but what are people demanding based on shifts of uh, demographics? Yeah. And that's a good example of highest and best use as well. So what would you advise investors that are looking or at least trying to look at this whole supply, demand, and capacity to pay scenario in order to be able to predict real estate prices? I'm sure for a lot of people, this sounds rather complex. And if it's new to someone, they're probably feeling somewhat overwhelmed because there's all these variables. Where do I find that information? How do I, you know, piece it all together once I have it? So if you were to simplify this, what would you boil this down to as far as what to focus on so you have at least a finger on the pulse of a market? Great question. So to make it simple, you just want to find the trend and invest with the trend. And so if you're living in a marketplace where you're fighting the trend, you probably want to invest outside of your local marketplace and somewhere where the trend is moving in the right direction. Where do people want to live? That's additional demand. Where is the supply going to be restricted because of the various things that we talked about? If you can find those two magic equations, you're heading yourself in the right direction. Capacity to pay is a pretty easy thing to do just by taking the median home price divided by the median income. And you can see that multiplier. And the lower that multiplier is, that's the affordability ratio that you talked about the more likely it is that prices could depreciate in the future. The higher it is, the more likely that market is in a bubble and is going to correct until that ratio is more affordable. The other thing is looking at currency, and that's a little bit more complex in terms of what the supply and the demand of currency is. And the additional part of currency is velocity. And the velocity is how quickly money moves and consumer confidence is a one way to, to look at or anticipate velocity of money. Because if, if you earn a dollar today and you stick it in your savings account and you don't spend it because you think that you're going to lose your job and you want those reserves, then that makes velocity lower. If you have a high confidence in the future of the economy, you earn a dollar and you immediately go out and spend it, 
That's confidence in the economy. That's consumer confidence. That dollar gets spent more quickly. And the more quickly that dollar gets spent, the more supply of currency there is in the the marketplace, which tends to push prices up because the more money there is, the more people have to use it. Right now, what's happening in the economy is the government has created an unprecedented amount of money. The actual money supply is gigantic. It has increased several fold in the last decade. But people have a slow velocity. They aren't spending the money. They they get the money and then they don't spend it. It just sits in an asset like the stock market or it sits in an asset like precious metals or it sits in an asset like real estate. And once it's in that asset and it doesn't move, that makes velocity low. So when we see increased consumer confidence, that means money is going to trade faster, which means prices can go up. When we look at decrease in consumer confidence, money is going to move slower. People are going to hoard cash instead of spending cash, and that will move prices lower. And that's kind of what happened in the 2009-2010 real estate crash is not only did the banks pull in the money, they weren't lending it because they didn't have confidence. The banks didn't have confidence they were going to get paid back, so they pulled the money out of circulation. And then the consumers, when they had money, same thing. They pulled the money out of circulation to say, I think I'm going to lose my job, so I'm going to just sit on the savings in case I need it. I'm not going to take that vacation. I'm not going to go buy that extra big TV. I'm going to sit in savings. And so... You can also track on a nationwide basis or on a local basis what that consumer confidence is like, and that's a good predictor of what's going to happen to the price up or down. Yeah, and I think just to be clear for the listeners, when you talk about currency, another way to look at that is just the amount of credit that's available. I mean, you refer to it as currency, but really that's synonymous to the amount of credit available to borrowers, not just through institutional lending organizations like your local bank, but even portfolio lenders. And we're seeing a lot of them today that are coming out. And this is essentially private money outside of the institutional environment. And they're providing all kinds of loans. In fact, we're starting to see stated income loans again. We're starting to see asset-based loans, which are not so much based on the borrower's ability to repay, in other words, their income, but it's more based on their credit and the asset that they're purchasing. And we're seeing a lot of that coming out today. So that credit is increasing, which means that the capacity to pay is also increasing, and that's going to drive more people into the demand side of the equation, which will increase the velocity of the money, which will increase prices. And one other comment kind of a, from an economic perspective here, and maybe political, but these negative interest rates that you know we're all hearing in the media right now, which has not come to America yet, but I have a feeling that within the next 12 months or so, we're probably going to see negative interest rates here. One of the reasons to have a negative interest rate in your checking account or savings account is to prevent people from putting or parking their cash, their currency in the bank. They want you to take that and put it into the economy, to spend it, to drive up the stock market, to put it into other assets. And so it doesn't make sense to keep your cash in the bank because you're paying the bank to hold it. It doesn't make sense to keep your cash in your mattress because inflation will eat it away, even if it's just nominal inflation, headline inflation, you know, what the government tells you, you know, two, three, four percent. It really pays to keep your money moving and keep your money working for you. And the best way to do that, obviously, is through income producing real estate. So that's my commentary on your comments there, David. Yeah, Marco, people could put their money into a into the bank and earn a rate of interest that was significant to them and they had peace at night that they were just that their money was safe you wouldn't need to be into income real estate everybody would just have money in savings accounts but as bank interest rates savings as they push those interest rates down and they pay less and less and less for interest People who have a need for income are pushed to alternate assets like real estate, like mortgage investments, being a private lender. Notes. Notes, yeah. And being in the stock market is a pretty scary place to be, in my opinion, because the people that 
are currently buying big parts of the market. I'm talking about institutional investors, giant insurance companies and re giant retirement plans like state teachers, retirement plans and giant government hedge employees. Funds. Hedge funds. Yeah. They would rather be in a safe treasury bond. They don't want to be buying shares of Apple and shares of Motorola. They, they want to be in a bond. But as those bond yields dip below inflation, then they're stuck, right? They, they have to take the money out of bonds into a riskier asset class like stocks or equities. And so a scary thing that could happen is as interest rates go up, the people who would rather be in bonds are going to sell. They're going to sell their equities and bring a sigh of relief and say, Whew, I don't have to be in that risky equity anymore. Let me go to the safety of bonds, which is where I wanted to be all the time. And that change in interest rates or a significant increase in interest rates could very well result in a significant decline in prices as people shift away from equity positions to debt positions as lenders. And so that's just something that I would caution people about who are, are stock investors. Well, the, the market is at an all-time high, and can it go higher? Maybe, but I don't think so. I mean, anything's possible, but there's so many economic factors confounding at the same time that say there's a potential risk for staying in the stock market. Simultaneously, someone can go get a 30-year fixed mortgage at 4 to 5% to go buy a piece of property with. And if you could buy a property paying you a 6% yield and you could borrow most of the money at 4% to go buy that property with, how much money do you want to borrow it for to invest at 6 Well, a lot. How much can I get? Load me up with debt. I think there's a growing concern with the equities market, particularly you know stocks. In the last few weeks, I've had two investors approach me and talk to me about their positions. And we're talking very, very significant positions in the stock market. And they realize that they need to start divesting, maybe not entirely, but at least a very measurable portion of it. Unfortunately, we don't have a free market. And if we did, the stock market would have corrected a long time ago. And it probably would have been a you know, a pleasant, nice, orderly correction. But I think, at least this is my fear, the stock market is poised for a massive correction and nobody can predict when I don't have a crystal ball. Personally, I think we're going to see something fairly significant in the next 12 months. But, you know, if, if you're heavily vested in the stock market, and, and this is not financial advice by any means, but me personally, I wouldn't be in the stock market right now. And if I was in it, I would start divesting just to hedge, at least hedge my position if not, just completely shift and move out of that asset and into, let's say, a safer or uh, income-producing type of investment instead of a speculative investment that's based on nothing more than capital gains and lacks dividend payments these days. Yeah, I pay attention to the stock market because it influences the wealth effect or the wealth feeling, which is also consumer confidence. So as the stock market is plummeting, Wealthy people feel shy. They don't spend as much because their 401k plan is down and they think, oh my gosh, the stock market's down 20 points. I'm going to have to work an extra 10 years to retire. They start spending less. And so when I am looking at the correlation to real estate prices, I think that if there is a significant correction in the stock market, which I think is coming, then the median income and up, the people that have discretionary income and the people who are in this heavily invested in the stock market and are that move up buyer, you know, the median income and higher, I think they're going to feel the pinch. And, and I think that those buyers might not be moving up. They might buckle down and move down a little bit in the home, their home purchases, or they might just bilaterally rather than buying a bigger home. They just buy a home consistent with what they currently have. Yep. Yep. That's a, a very fair assessment and prediction and only time will tell, but you know, we'll find out soon enough. David, we've been running one hour on this recording here and I think maybe we should start wrapping it up. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before we bring this to a close? Hey, Marco, I want to say thank you to all of your listeners who are listening today because they make the show worth doing. 
And uh, I want to say thank you so much for being a great friend and providing so many awesome resources and investment opportunities to to the world. I, I think you're doing a, a, offering a great service. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. So, David, tell our listeners how they can find you and learn a little bit more about what you're doing. Yeah. So my blog at hasslefreecashflowinvesting.com. Again, that's hasslefreecashflowinvesting.com. It has a ton of great educational resources available for free, lots of eBooks and videos and our blog articles have been named one of the top 100 real estate investing blogs in America. And uh, just encourage visitors to pop on over to that site and start up a conversation or just read some blogs or download some great free content. Awesome. Well, David, it's uh, as always, it's great having you on the show. I appreciate your time and uh, we'll look forward to having you again sometime in the next couple months. Thanks, Marco. All right, David. Thanks again. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.